Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with two-time Grammy Award-winning pianist and composer Peter Cater. He talked to the show from one of his bases in Hawaii about a great many things over a long, well-groomed musical existence. He just released his newest 2021 CD, Rapture, that features 12 diverse melodic landscapes straight from his world. He was born of German parents in the Bavarian city of Munich, then moved to New Jersey, where he began to take classical piano lessons. At the age of 18, he left New Jersey with his backpack and his music books and hitchhiked all over the continental U.S. for a year. He would finally land in Boulder, Colorado, finding comfort and inspiration in the Rocky Mountains. Since that time, he has forged some very interesting musical relationships over the years, like John Denver, Kenny Loggins, and so many others. He's full of wonderful stories and details. Enjoy. Well, hey, thanks for taking a minute out. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Cool. So you said you were traveling, so I'm curious, are things opening up? Are you starting to play some more live gigs? I am starting to book some live gigs starting the beginning of September. But right now, I just I just flew back to Hawaii because I kind of live between Boulder and Hawaii. And, um, okay, good deal. Well, I just want to, first and foremost, I want to dive into Rapture and, you know, with the backdrop being the pandemic, how does it feel to be able to have this album to communicate with, with the audience? I mean, it's been a long time since there's been live music, so how does this release feel for you? Of course, there was the, you know, obvious negative aspects of the pandemic, but, you know, there was also some positive aspects, I thought. And for me, I'm already kind of an introvert, so when the pandemic hit, I didn't. it didn't really like bother me a whole lot that I couldn't go to, you know, different restaurants and that kind of stuff. And I kind of took it as an invitation to kind of take a big review of my life, you know, like I was reviewing like habits and patterns and relationships and really looking at what's working, what's not working, you know, how do I want to move forward after all this is over. And Rapture is kind of a reflection of that. Because, you know, to be honest, in a way, I kind of embraced myself in a way that I hadn't done in a long time. And there was a sense of rapture, not only for my life, but also, you know, I met I met a partner. I made a lot of decisions that I think were really positive in my life. So it was actually a really good growing kind of healing experience for me. You know, and I know you're an environmentalist, and from that standpoint, you know, this time on the planet really cleaned things up. I mean, you, I mean, Venice, the canal, you know, cleared up. Yeah. LA, Denver, there was a lot of smog. I think maybe the bigger message, too, is is that at the end of the day, Mother Nature is going to win the arm wrestling match. Yeah, no doubt about that. Mother Nature is always going to win. I have a little bit of resistance when they, you know, when they start pulling out their, like, you know, save the earth, you know, kind of propaganda, because it's really like you know, let's be clear, let's save humanity, because the Earth is going to be fine, ultimately, you know. So we need to learn to have respect for ourselves and for each other, and that will kind of heal a lot of things, including the environment. Well, I think the biggest indication of that is the temperatures and how those things are creating environmental things that are affecting humans. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely all corollary for sure. We live a very fine line here, you know, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the Earth, I don't think, really, you know, matters a whole lot if the temperatures go up five or ten degrees over the next hundred years. The Earth, again, is going to be fine. It's just a question of whether, you know, we can really survive these kind of big shifts. So, you know, with Rapture and with other success of 
projects. How do you how do you approach new projects? Is this kind of a snapshot of your life? Do you see it as an evolution of yourself as a musician? How do you kind of go in and 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 view these projects that that come out the new ones? Well, I just did a video for Rapture a few months ago. It's like an eleven minute kind of short film, and one of the first things that I say in the film is that all my albums are autobiographical. You know, so they all they all reflect kind of where I'm at at the time. You know, so if I've been doing a lot of soul searching, the music kind of reflects that. If I've been, you know, traveling around the world and being out and doing lots of things, the music kind of reflects that. And so Rapture, like I said, in that way also reflects where I've been at, you know, since the late 19, no, 2019 and early 2020. What do you want the listener that either buys or downloads this new album to get out of it? What do you ultimately want them to feel from this art? You know, by the time I release a record, I kind of let go of it. You know, my whole creative process is in discovering the music, arranging the music, recording the music, doing the overdubs, the mixing process. I love the mixing process. By the time I'm finished and I've got it packaged, and it's ready to come out, and I've got sort of a marketing plan in place, I've kind of let it go. And, you know, I would just hope that it reaches as many people as possible. Like with this album, for example, I leaned a little bit towards my earlier contemporary jazz uh, roots, and just very slightly. So a few of the songs actually, you know, charted on like the smooth jazz and jazz fusion charts, and we're getting um, airplay on about over 100 jazz stations in Europe. For me, that was a big win-win because I haven't really touched on that market, I think, in a long time. And I felt like I was reaching a, a somewhat different and broader audience than maybe I'd been reaching in some of my more introspective, quote, new agey kind of records. You know what I mean? When i reading through your bio, you know, it's interesting that the part where you went across the United States and backpacked. It almost seems like that should be something everyone should do. I mean, the idea of travel, you know what I'm saying, and seeing the world and figuring out who you are, your place in it, and what you ultimately want to do. I want to get to that, but I also want to begin in the very beginning with you. How did these seeds of music get in you to kind of become who you are now? Well, if I look back on it, I could say that I always had somewhat of a gift, even though I didn't realize it. And my gift was kind of inappropriate because I started off taking classical piano lessons. And I was terrible at those because I kept on trying to improvise around the melodies and kind of throw in my own feel and my own style. And that was very unpopular with the classical teachers. So I think my gift has got something to do with improvisation, exploring, finding my own voice, you know, and that happened very, very gradually over the year, you know, and there was a lot of self-exploration involved, you know. Like, I grew up playing pop and rock and Top 40, and, you know, after the classical lessons ended, and I really enjoyed that. And then I got turned on to Keith Jarrett, you know, who's all about, you know, exploratory improvisation. And some other bands and musicians that were all about the same thing, and that all coincided with me hitchhiking around the country for a year and a half. You know, I put in over 30,000 miles on the road just with my thumb. And I don't know if you can do that anymore, you know, safely. I mean, I, I even got into some hairy situations that uh, I feel lucky to have not gotten hurt or, you know, worse, you know. 
So it was a big time, you know, and it was also... <laughs> it's all a part of the growth, the, the self-exploration. and But definitely, that's something I can't even imagine ever happening during this day and era. I mean, I, I see some, uh, you know, some rough cats walking down the street with their thumb out. And I think if Officer Friendly goes by, it's, an, it's over with. I, I don't even think you can do that anymore, you know. I wouldn't, I uh, wouldn't advise it. I feel like I'm yeah, right. the, last, the last wave of that. Yeah, 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 for sure. So ultimately during that time of exploration, did you figure out during that time that music was your calling, or were you not quite sure if that was going to be your life? I wasn't sure. I knew it was something that I could lean on here and there to make some money and to give me some comfort and security. But, you know, I was coming out of the pop and rock world. I didn't know that there would be a market for someone who doesn't really play classical music and doesn't really play jazz and doesn't really write lyrics and sing. So I didn't really know what was going to happen. I just kept on doing my own thing and that seemed to work out fine eventually, you know. I was kind of surprised. I started doing the contemporary jazz thing and, and my first few records doing that all charted in the top 10 on national airplay charts and I started doing jazz festivals. And that was really fun for a while. And then I met this Native American flutist who just had this like, you know, 12 inch wooden flute with six holes in it. And I thought the sound that came out of his instrument was amazing. And I started playing piano along to it. And then we did a record together, which I thought no one was going to care about. And next thing you know, that was selling 10 times as many units as my contemporary jazz stuff. So I, I kind of followed that energy. And I don't know, I just, I just kind of follow my muse wherever it takes me. You know, you've had some pretty stellar collaborations over the years, or you've been on stage with some pretty stellar musicians like John Denver and Kenny Loggins and others. What, what did you learn from them that has helped you the most? in your journey as a musician, things that have resonated with you? I think what I learned from them was pretty much what I learned from anybody who I put up on a pedestal or who I admire and respect is that when you get to know them, they're just like you and me. They're just, we're just trying to find our way. We're just trying to be authentic to our creative voice. We're you know, we're looking for connection with something. And music creates kind of a bridge for that, you know. And what I learned most, I think, when I listen to Keith Jarrett, who is my favorite pianist, what I listen, what I get from and listening to him is permission. It's just permission just to do whatever the hell I want, because that's what he does. He just sits there and just does whatever he wants you know, sometimes the audience thinks he's nuts. Sometimes the audience thinks he's rude. Sometimes the audience sees that he's absolutely brilliant. But he's he's kind of true to his muse. You know what I mean? I don't always like what he does, but I love that there's a freedom just to say, I'm just going to do whatever I want and see what happens. You know, and that's I think that's the biggest permission you can give any creative person, whether they're a chef or a painter or a musician or actor. You've won Grammys. You've had a lot of nominations. You've, you've won a lot of awards. And I'm curious. I don't want to know what your favorite one is. That's never a fair question. But what, what award surprised you the most? That you, just threw you off guard. My first Grammy nomination threw me off guard. I was not thinking about it. I didn't think I was in the running. 
I, it wasn't even on my radar. You know, the, the Grammys actually weren't on, on my radar at that point. I was just doing my work. I was remember I was driving to a gig and I got a phone call from the, my friend who was the head of the label that I was with at the time. And he said, he said, Peter, I, I want to be the first person to congratulate you on your Grammy nomination. And it totally, it totally floored me. It was like, I didn't see it coming. And I had no idea I was even in the running. And it, it was like one of those peak moments of like, oh, my God, I cannot believe this just happened. It seemed so huge that I you know, couldn't even integrate it. It's different now after 14 nominations, you know, and two wins. But yeah. still, it's like that first one was like amazing. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, you said that there, there was some benefits to this pandemic. And I'm curious. Now that everything's starting to wake up, what did you learn about yourself over this time that's going to make you stronger and a, and a, a, a better, well-equipped musician when you get back to it? Well, I think everything that I experience in life affects my music. You know, it's like I'll sometimes not play the piano for a few weeks or even a couple months at a time if I'm in between projects. And I find that when I go back to it, even if I haven't played for a while, I feel like I'm playing better. You know, because what I've learned in life has given me more perspective and more depth and the way that I approach music and the piano keyboard comes from a different place than it did four weeks ago or two months ago. And I think what I've learned and I continue to learn, I was thinking about this morning, you know, it's like what what's really important is your inner world. You know, it's like all this stuff can go on out in the outside world and people can say, oh, you got to wear a mask, you can't go here, you got to do that, you got to take this, you know, all these rules and all this protocol and all this stuff. If you focus on that, you're going to drive yourself crazy. We have to really be solid in ourselves. We have to really feel like regardless of what goes on outside in the world, we have to be okay because we know that we're connected to ourselves or to, you know, whatever it is that gives us peace and joy and stability, you know, because it's probably a little different for everybody, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe it is just all about connecting with ourselves or, you know, I've never been a religious person, but, you know, maybe it's about connecting with a higher perspective or a higher energy that kind of makes all this kind of integrate together and make sense more, you know what I mean? What was the first show that you ever saw live that really really made you think that's something that you wanted to do with your life? I, I went to a lot of rock shows, you know, like early on, you know, growing up. I saw, you know, a lot of greats like, you know, Bruce Springsteen and James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt. And, you know, I came from that time period of the, the 70s, you know. The first show that I saw that really said, wow, I want to do that. Maybe I do have. Maybe I do have a future in the business. Was uh, a show by the group called Oregon. It's an avant-garde jazz group uh, with Paul McCandless on oboe and saxophones, Ralph Towner on piano and guitar. Um, those are the two main guys. Unfortunately, I don't remember the drummer and the bass player's name right now. But they spoke to me musically in a way that was like, wow, they've, they've got no lyrics. You know, there's no vocals. They're just instrumentalists. But for some reason, what they're playing 
speaks to my soul. It just speaks to the, like, they're, they're talking to me in a way where I, I feel like I'm learning something and there's emotional content, even though there's not a storyline that's subjective, you know? And so that, that, that was a big or, door opener for me. The group Oregon and the group called the Paul Winter Consort. They were huge. And so I wound up working with them down the road, you know, which, yeah, which was also, like, amazing. And that's what I was going to say, dream realized right there. Yeah, that's crazy. To work with your heroes is, like, mind-blowing and humbling in a huge way. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, every day you wake up, you get to create. You get to be – you're a musician. What is the best part of the process for you? What do you like the best about being a professional musician? One of the things is that I actually get paid for being myself and following my muse and doing my soul searching. You know, that I actually, the more that I'm more authentic with myself and who I am and how that translates to my music, that it seems like the more support I get as well. So I enjoy that. I mean, it's a it's a luxury to do what you love. You know, they they say you know if you want to like what do they say about uh, never work a day in your life, follow your passion, and never work a day in your life or something like that. Yeah. Because you know I don't feel like I have a job. I feel like I have yeah. a passion. And the other yeah. thing is that I've learned is trusting the process. Like I'm at a place in my career where I don't feel like I have to be creative all the time. Because I know that the, the downtime of recharging and not being creative is only preparing me for the next creative cycle. So I enjoy trusting the whole process. It's like, yeah, I've got nothing. i got nothing. I, I, I couldn't play a song right now if I wanted to because I have no inspiration whatsoever. And that's okay because one of these mornings I'm going to wake up and it's going to be like, oh, I know it exactly what I want to play, you know, and then there's that fire and then there's that very, very clear creative direction. And that's exciting. Every single time it's exciting. And every single time I go into the void of not feeling creative, it feels a little uncomfortable, a little scary, like, wow, there's nothing. I don't even feel like an artist. I just feel like I've got nothing, you know, To, to be in that space of like, you know, I've got nothing. But having just that little remembrance of like, but I know it's coming, it's pretty cool. If you have a dream tonight, you run into your younger self around the time that you were just starting out being a musician, and you could give your younger self one piece of advice about what you've learned through all these years, the wisdom you've gotten, what would it be? <laughs> don't listen to anybody else. <laughs> don't, don't listen to what anyone else tells you that you should do or what they think about your work or whatever, just make yourself happy because the sooner you make yourself happy, the better it's all going to be. You know, I mean, I remember working on records and studios and, you know, paying, a, you know, a really highly talented engineer to mix my record and me, me saying, could I get a little more bass? I'd like, I'd like to hear a little more bass on this song. And then he starts arguing with me and going, this song's got enough bass already, you know? And, and then you're arguing with the person that you're paying to do it, you know? And he's, I know he's probably thinking, you know, that, that there is enough bass. But ultimately, 
I need to feel like there's enough space, just as an example. So once I started to learn how to engineer my own records and mix my own records and get the levels of everything the way I want them, the sound the way I want them, I became a lot more happy with the end product of my music. And coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, that's when things really started to come together more in, in the external world as well. You know, when we do all kind of return to live music, what do you hope we all realize collectively about being in a live music environment, both musician and fan? I love the intimacy of connecting with an audience, and sometimes that's easier to do with smaller audiences. Like, I've been doing a lot more home concerts, you know, for 15 to 35, 40 people. And I love the intimacy that builds there. I think maybe when we go back into live concerts and bigger concerts, we can really try to connect more as a group with each other, with the musicians, with who we're with, you know, and really put energy into the, the group experience and more intimacy and more genuine connecting, you know. I think that's what I really love about live music is really the genuine quality of a shared experience. Everyone has a perception of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you're living your life. Who do you think you are? <laughs> that's a funny question. Uh, I, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm the same person I always was, but I don't doubt myself as much. You know, I don't second-guess myself as much. You know, I feel like I'm a student. You know, I'm a student of, like, I, I love to refer to my muse because I really see that as a real thing, a real relationship. You know, so I feel like I'm a, I'm a devotee, you know. I'm a devotee of my muse, of life. You know, I don't... I'm sure I've accomplished some things you know, oh, it looks good on paper, you know, two or three paragraphs of what I've done for the last 30 or 40 years. It ought to look kind of decent. But I think I want to appreciate life, you know. I want to appreciate everyday life. I want to take nothing for granted, you know, and just really enjoy the people that I'm with, enjoy the food I'm eating, enjoy the nature that I get to experience, you know. Be appreciative. I think that makes a good life. Peter, thank you for taking a minute out to talk about the album and your life and music. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Joe. I appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for reaching out to me. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Boulder, Hawaii, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Peter for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.